Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Carrie C and today I'm talking to the brilliant composer Nanita Desai. Nanita has written scores for many BAFTA, Emmy and Oscar award-winning and nominated films and TV series. Recent projects include the feature film American Murder, which is currently number one around the world on Netflix. Nanita produced a 360-degree score for the feature The Reason I Jump, which won the World Cinema Documentary Audience Award at Sundance Film Festival 2020. Nanita's output varies greatly from epic classical scores to moody electronica, and she's really passionate about her synths too. Hello, Nanita, and thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to this Sound on Sound podcast. It's lovely to speak to you. We met at Synthfest last year and it was nice to talk all passionate electronic music and tech nerdities with you. So I think I'd be interested to start with what you're up to at the moment and what wonderful projects you have going on. Hi, Cara. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. So what am I doing at the moment? I'm working on a variety of projects, uh, all mainly film and TV based. Um, I've got a feature film coming out early next year, which is based on a book called The Reason I Jump, which I'm very excited about. Um, But I'm working on a few TV series uh, for Netflix, which is really fascinating. Um, It's a true crime project and it's lots of twists and turns and weird, bizarre, unusual music. So I'm very excited about that. And I'm working on a documentary feature for HBO, which is about personality testing. And I'm excited about that musically because it's allowing me to come full circle to uh, writing some electronica music and synthwave, which has uh, been a real treat to get into because, you know, people like to stereotype you, you know, think, well, you do this kind of music, you do that style of music. And I work for lots of different clients um, and I write in many different genres uh, in, in within the world of, uh, with, under the umbrella of film and television. So between all my different types of clients, I cover a lot of different styles because you know I might do natural history which is big orchestral writing and those kinds of clients think oh and Anita doesn't do synth wave and electronica and uh, and then I'll do something else which pushes me in a different direction stylistically so between all of them I cover a lot of bases and and that's what I really love about what I'm doing at the moment which I've got about nine or ten projects um, and because they're also different stylistically, creatively, uh, it keeps me fresh. You know, there's nothing worse for me than regurgitating the same style of music from project to project because it just all blurs into one. And I know that, you know, a lot of composers, you know, specialise in, in one style, but I think my one of my strengths is my diversity, which can be, for the better or the worse, I think I like to keep myself interested in what I'm doing and, and my Part of my process is to jump from different styles. Yeah, I can relate to the 
keeping yourself fresh in terms of it, you're always learning. If you had your signature sound, which we all have, of there'll course. be some thread in what you're doing, yes. the essence of you. Mm. But there's something about that. Just this week, someone said, right, can you do me a podcast jingle? I want it in this. And it's just like, yes, it just throws that, you know, freshness in. And you're like, right, OK, how am I going to respond to that? And I think if anything, it keeps the creativity alive, but also it keeps you stretched, I think. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. And, and, and you know, I mean, for me, one of my mantras is that writing music for film and TV, it's a lifelong learning process. You never, you never stop learning, you know, on every project I'll treat myself to a new toy, which I'll immerse myself into, or, or just a new process. Because, you know, when I'm writing, for example, it's my default mode is to sit in front of the computer uh, with my with my screens in front of me, my master keyboard, con controller keyboard, and plugins and, and sample libraries. And that's a very, which is great. But, you know, when you're doing that sort of 12 hours or 16 hours a day, um, seven days a week, you, you can become stagnant. And, and I think it's really important to mix up one's creative process and to inject that sort of lifeblood into, you know, I'll, uh, I'll turn to a different music. I mean, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. That's the way I see myself. So I've got a, a room full of musical instruments, acoustic instruments and electronic instruments, you know, synths and so on. And, and various controllers and will turn my hand to them to just to try and mix things up um, in the way that, you know, I'm not a great guitarist, but the way I'll write on the guitar will be very different to the way I'll write on the keyboard or I'll, I'll bring out um, one of my favourite toys at the moment is a, is, um, a halo. It's a kind of a hand pan and, um, and I use it very sparingly. You know, it was right for one particular project I did last year and I started playing it and it just... It just injects a bit of, you know, it just excites me uh, and and forces me to be creative and to write in a different way um, instead of sitting in front of the computer, which I must admit I do a lot of the time anyway. Mm -hmm. Or I'll bring in musicians. You know, I'm very inspired by, you know, bringing in collaborators and, and musicians to play uh, as well, which is which is always very refreshing. Yeah. And you talked about going full circle back to synthwave electronica. What's your electronica roots, if you like? <laughs> <laughs> so I got into the industry via technology. Um, I was always a bit of a geek. I loved computers. Um, I think my first computer was an old Amstrad PC. And I was very much into video games as well. You know, I had an Atari 2600 and so really into computers. My, I started off by, I had a four-track Fostex X26 multi-track recorder. And I think it's still in my parents' attic. And um, uh, that, and I built up my own home studio. So I had the Fostex X26. I had a Sony DAT recorder, TCDD3. I had a... WMD6 sort of state-of-the-art cassette recorder for sort of location recordings. Um, I just, I was really into sound. At school, I was uh, a performer and I wanted to be a singer and I was writing my own material on guitar and piano and I learned the violin. But, um, but I also loved synthesizers and I saved up 
Um, it took me, uh, I think, a year and a half to save up to buy my first synth, which was a Roland D70. You know, I wasn't going to compromise with the D50 as much as I loved it. I thought, I'll go the full whack and get the, uh, I think it was 76 keys um, on the Roland D70, which I still have. I bought the Roland R8 drum machine. And what else did I have? I had a Access Virus B synth, the, the rack-mounted version, and a Yamaha TG77, the rack-mounted version of the DX7. And when I, I went to university and I did a degree in mathematics, and my thesis was on the wave equation. So, and it was all, and, and it was just sort of on the cusp of actually the DX7 had come out but unbeknown to me you know I was, I was I was determined to make to create and invent my own form of sound synthesis um so so I so I studied the wave equation and got into you know creating sounds and I thought here yeah, I've I've invented um uh, you know, sound synthesis system, which was actually what the DX7 used, you know, with sine waves and the wave equation and so on. Uh, you know, I wasn't the first to get there, <laughs> sadly, but it really opened up doors. I did a postgraduate course in music information technology. So I really studied uh, psychoacoustics, uh, music and emotion, uh, music and streaming, uh, Zanakis, you know, the, the, uh, the Greek uh, mathematician who's really into architecture as well and these great graphical drawings and how he constructed his music. And, of course, my my heroes, really, as a teenager, my heroes were Jean-Michel Jarre and my dream was to work for the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And that's, you know, the Delia Derbyshire and Elizabeth Parker who worked at the... She worked at the tail end of the um, Radiophonic Workshop. So that was my dream job. I thought, you know, I can earn a living out of this. It seemed like a sensible route. And then, of course, I couldn't do it. I couldn't apply because the Radiophonic Workshop closed down. And, of course, they no, no longer took on apprentices or trainee studio managers. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, how did you know about people like, you know, before the internet? <laughs> how did you know about people like the Radiophonic <laughs> Workshop? Because, in a way, I, I, I gather that it was quite sort of a hidden kind of work, really, that was going on. Mm. No, I mean, it was this hidden world, wasn't it? And it was almost pre-computers as well in many respects. So, you know, I grew up loving the Doctor Who theme and and Vangelis and Jean-Michel Jarre and all these artists, but with the Radiophonic Workshop, which was my my ultimate dream. You know, I, I have to admit, Caro, I owe a lot to Sound on Sound because I would put all my pocket money into buying the, you know, the monthly Sound on Sound magazine and I would pour over every article and every word in all these amazing interviews and articles and it was one of the very few leading resources in music technology at the time I mean yes you had Mix Magazine which was very US based and I used to buy the occasional issue of that if I could afford it but Sound on Sound was like my my religious bible and still is you know I, I think I must be one of their oldest subscribers for, for over 25 years now um, so so that's how I discovered the Radiophonic Workshop. And, and and then I used to follow everything that they were doing. So that was my way into the industry, really. Yeah. And I was at the same time, I was very much into sound, you know, and not just, just music. So I got a scholarship to go to the National Film and Television School to, to, to study sound for film. And that gave me a great grounding in location sound recording, audio post-production and 
And while I was doing my postgrad diploma in music information technology, I did a, um, a paper in um, audio post-production practices within the film industry. So it was an excuse for me to go and visit all these amazing post-production facilities like Delane Lee in Soho, which is still one of the leading uh, audio post facilities with great, you know, Dolby uh, dubbing theatres and, and sound editors working away on their digital sound systems. And I, I was sort of like an early digital baby. I got in when, uh, even before Pro Tools uh, had become widely used, I was using technology. I became an apprentice, uh, an assistant sound designer on feature films. And I was working on the Synclavier, which was just, I mean, to be able to get my hands on the Synclavier, which cost about £250,000 at the time. And I think there are about only five or six of them in the UK. So they were like gold dust. And and it was an amazing opportunity for me to get my hands on that kit. Um, and, you know, at the time, the Synclavier and the Fairlight were very much in vogue. And the Fairlight was really taken on board by people like Peter Gabriel and... Mm-hmm. Kate Bush used it a lot, didn't she? Kate Bush and, you know... Um, and Trevor Horn, of course, Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm. And so I was blown away by that, you know, the way that the sampler was being used at the time. You know, what was it, what, 32 megabytes of RAM or whatever it was, <laughs> which was so luxurious. And so I got to get my hands on that at work and I'd use it and, and understand the technology. And at school, you know, going back to my teenage years, my music department at school had an EMS. VCS3. They'd spent, you know, a lot of money on it and no one was using it. And so I said to the head of music, can I borrow this? And, uh, And he said, yeah, sure, don't worry about it, you know, take it home. So I took it home. Was that the one in the briefcase? Yes, the one in the briefcase. You know, the one like Battleship. Yes. Um, and I used to play around with the pins and uh, and make squeaks and squawks out of it. And so I took it home. I borrowed it for two years and no one had noticed that it wasn't there in the music department. Excellent. Well, it needed to be used. It needed the life yeah, and the love. Of course it did. Someone had to use it. So when I left school, I took it back. Of course, I was honest. And uh, uh, But and so, and I took it back and they said oh we didn't realize this was missing you know <laughs> I thought, damn I could have kept it and of course now they're worth about 20k or you know they're sort of vintage antique value yeah yeah so we have with Delia Derbyshire Dave with our educational work we've got yes. um, some licenses for um the IVCS3 and I don't know if you had a, if you had a play on that at all no I haven't it's fun and they've come up with loads of amazing presets in terms really? of really I uh, think it's a guy called Edward Cosby in particular mm-hmm. that's been really making all these presets as a way in right. sort of thing but yeah yeah it's quite good fun. It's even got the Every Nun Needs a Synth oh, wow. with the endorsement of Peter Zinovia yes, yes. as part of the app as well. Yes. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the i versions may not be the same or the virtual versions may not be mm. the same. I started off on a Korg Poly 800 and I did love it. It was, it was sort of the bridge between analogue and digital. Yes. But at the same time, I think I am quite in love with my Arturia, <laughs> um, you know, my, my soft synths as well. Well, I have an Arturia Matrix Brute which is, you know, that crossover between the analogue and digital. And that's that's yeah. huge fun. I really enjoy that. But but at the time, so when I was working as a sound designer, I was working with the DAR sound station, which had a touch-sensitive screen. And it was very progressive and full. It was at the cutting edge of technology. And there was another system made by SSL called the SSL Screen Sound. 
And it was a bit like um, a tablet, like a Wacom tablet mm -hmm. with a pen, a stylus pen. Of course, we take it all for granted now with iPads and, and the Apple pens. But that was quite, you know, we had a multi-channel setup and I could, um, I, I worked for a year in Germany after I finished film school. I got offered in a, a job as a sound designer, a sound editor at this post-production facility, which had just amazing gear. You know, they had a Neve VR Legend mixing desk, which I got to use. Um, um, you know, the sort of real, the height of, um, I mean, it was just the best mixing desk in the world at that time, alongside the Euphonics, which was which was a different beast altogether. But um, I was using the SSL screen sound and I was recording, I was a Foley artist. I was going to ask if you got to do any Foley. Yes, yeah. Brilliant. So I was doing Foley's and then I'd have to edit be a Foley editor as well and edit my own Foley's. So that taught me a lot about, you know, you know, being both sides of the studio, you know, being in the studio, recording the Foley's, you know, with, you know, crushing cabbages and, and um, <laughs> putting, <laughs> and, um, you know, footsteps and all of that, which I was really, you know, it's taught me a lot about, you know, watching picture and anticipating body movements and, you know, working with squeaky suitcase handles and, and, um, all sorts of things yeah. and mic placement yes yeah and then editing it afterwards mm -hmm. and then uh, I was also you know doing sound design I work managed to work with Werner Herzog who's just such a amazing filmmaker and still is today such a legend in the industry so so I did that but then I missed London and I came back after a year I just thought I can't live in Germany anymore I love Germany but I was missing the the buzz of London so I came back and I was unemployed and I didn't know what to do and I was desperate after a few years of working in film as creative as it was I it wasn't my my true passion was music and I loved film and I loved music and so I I had met Peter Gabriel when I was at university and he, he came to the university to, to meet the students and um, and he I was showing him some work that I was doing at university, which was doing some hypercard MIDI programming uh, on these little Mac SEs, these really old Macs. And I and I did some uh, sort of mid early in the early days of MIDI. I was writing a little program, software program to allow people to understand Indian classical rhythms because I'd studied um, Indian classical music as a child and, uh, you know, these different complicated cross rhythms. And so it was a little sort of tutorial program that demonstrated all these Indian classical rhythms. And he found that really interesting. And he said, look, Nanita, look me up when you finish university. And of course, I didn't because I'd gone into the film industry. But when I came back to London after my, my uh, time in Germany, I remembered what he said. And he was a huge hero of mine, a musical hero, and, and what he was doing with world music and uh, real world and WOMAD was just so inspiring. And I remember hearing the soundtrack to The Last Temptation of Christ, um, Passion, uh, on the radio and I thought what is this sound it's just incredible and so what turned me on to into music was really I wanted to be a music engineer and a, and a music producer or more an engineer really and so I wrote Peter a letter 
uh, to real world, a handwritten letter. Uh, and then two weeks later, I got a phone call from the studio manager. I said, Nanita, we've got your letter. Would you like to come and visit us? And, you know, I mean, I was just, it was like going to real world, you know, this the the big room and you Pinch know and, and see the <laughs> setup. So I so I went along for a meeting and it ended up being a four hour meeting where I got a tour of the studio, had lunch there, talked to the studio manager, he introduced me to some of the engineers and I came back to London just buzzing with uh, with inspiration and um, then I got a phone call saying would you like to be Peter's assistant engineer um, during the real world recording week sessions Fantastic. so that was those were that was 1992 <laughs> 91 92 and unbeknown to me at the time it was it did feel like it was a bit like going to Woodstock you know it's one of these legendary moments in musical history where what Peter did was it was a bit like a summer camp he set up um, this environment over a summer where he invited 70 of the world's top world music artists and engineers and producers and they set up uh, about seven or eight recording studios that were operating round the clock and and, he, and all sorts of collaborations and um, sessions would go on where they'd put together a classical string quartet with a West African band with um, a, a trip-hop record producer just to see what kind of uh, music that I'd come up with and people were writing tracks on the spot and so I I was in Peter's room um, you know working with Dave Bottrell who's a who he was one of he was Peter's engineer main engineer at the time and, and with Peter in the room and we'd have um, there'd be recording sessions going all day and all night and so you know I got to work with Nigel Kennedy and Billy Cobham and and uh, Papa Wemba this amazing West African band at the time and Sinead O'Connor would come in to do backing vocals and amazing feast I remember there was one moment where it was 11 o'clock at night and I was working hard and um, Daniel Lenoir was in the big room and he said we we're putting together a choir I need I need Need some backing singers, so Peter said, "Oh, Nanita will go and do that for you." So I ended up being on the backing vocals on on some tracks with Daniel Lenoir. You know, it was engineering, and so that was a real, um, really special moment. And now, looking back on it, it's regarded as one of the, you know, one of those special musical historical moments in in, um, in recording. I think there was a pioneering spirit. It was a time when it all felt like it was blossoming and it felt like anything was possible. And I, I guess, I hope you felt that generally with technology. I think it does open up the possibilities more in terms of your palette, but also how you can touch certain, especially when it comes to film yes. and stuff, but in terms of touching certain emotional um, frequencies, mm, if you like. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you need that. You need time to find your voice and that time to experiment and you True. know and being at yeah. university is, is a great opportunity to do that but I mean I never I didn't I wasn't a I was a digital baby and I and I, I came from um, a tech background and that was my route and path into composing music as opposed to 
scoring music the traditional way and going to music college and doing a degree at the Royal College or the Royal Academy. And and really, you know, the, the combination of my background in world music and, and just having that open mind to um, sound, as um, obviously sound, my background in sound design as well, just having that openness is so important to what I do today. You know, and yeah. because music is, you know, sounds are sounds, and you know, use those, use any, all sorts of sounds to achieve the emotion and the storytelling that I'm trying to get across. Because what I do now, I see myself as a storyteller. You know, being a media composer these days means you have to have this really diverse and wide skill set of being able to program, mix, engineer, record, do everything, and compose everything yourself. Um, but at the same time, just to inject fresh voices and fresh creativity, I think collaboration is also so important. And I love bringing in musicians into my work as well. Um, you know, so I'll be recording with the BBC Symphony Orchestra one day to the London Contemporary Orchestra to a small ensemble to individual session musicians who will come to my studio because, you know, where I'm not a master of you know, the violin, I'm not a violinist, and, you know, I need to bring in those people and also sustain the industry and help, you know, it's it, because writing music can be so isolating and I am stuck in my studio at the bottom of my garden all day and, um, and I, you know, I, I like travelling, you know, I'm, I, we need to be inspired. You know, for me, it's with travelling and meeting other musicians from, from all over the world. Yeah. Definitely. I think that um, that exchange, I'm really aware of that at the moment mm. in terms of that magic that happens by meeting other yeah. ears and minds and yeah. hearts. <laughs> it's funny that the one thing that I learned from working with Peter was his process, his ideology is that it, music, it's all about capturing the magic of performance. So he used to keep a tape running all the time. And that was one of my jobs was that we had a DAT recorder running, recording everything that was going on in the room at the time during a session so if peter would stop you know we'd do another take or peter would say that's a really good take to such and such a musician and i'd make a note i had this big book where i'd write down everything that peter said and and then two hours later he could turn around to me and say oh gosh nanita there was this really amazing take that that Nigel Kennedy did what did I say at uh, and I'd have to have this sort of memory like a Rolodex and and I'd have this logbook and I said I'll go back and I'd make a note and a star next to five stars next to a point at 20 past two in the afternoon where Peter said that was a really great take you know and I'd rewind the dad to that point and play it back to Peter and the musicians and and then they go oh yeah that was a really one because there was so much improvising going on you know it was very much based on improvisation so he'd play I'd play that back and he'd go yep that's that moment I really love that little phrase there and so you can see why it takes Peter so many years to write an album because he's just a, an ideas man and surrounds himself with a really great team that can support that unique way of working um of course the, i mean that was before digital that before computers were really being used i mean of course he used the fairlight um but 
it was a, it was a musical in a musical synth synthesis way whereas you know we weren't really using computers in the way that we use now i was the computer <laughs> i that, was just going to say the... that that's totally what i'm imagining i'm imagining this young clever lass who's really keen like your eyes are in alice in wonderland and basically you are his computer where you always take machine where he's going i just want to go back to that can we rewind to that bit and you know exactly which bit you're, you're you were his voice activated computer yes yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. Excellent. And in terms of, is there any kit that you had back then that you still hold near and dear? Oh, well, I, I sold off. I want the one piece of kit I regret selling actually is the Yamaha TG77. I had it for one sound. Uh, at the end, I just kept it for one sound. And so I missed that sound. But, um, but I, yeah, I, I still have my Roland D70, which I, which I love to bits. I still have my Roland. I'm a big Roland fan, it turns out. I, I, I had the Roland S70, uh, 760 sampler, which I used on a feature film, a science fiction feature film to do all the sound design on that. I had a lot of monster creature effects, which I sampled into that. And I used to make up my own sounds. And I, I love my D70 and I had the Roland 5080 with all the expansion cards um so i i re that served me well in the first six or seven years of being a film and tv composer i really relied on that and i had the opcode studio vision that was my first door system that i used with the opcode uh, midi interfaces so i had things like the emu proteus modules and the yamaha synths i was using a lot of hardware synths and I had a Yamaha SPX90 and Elise's Quadroverb, which is really special, lovely reverb, actually. But my setup now is I've been buying a lot of hardware since, you know, I minimized my setup to just be working really in the box um, with loads of plugins and sound libraries. My first plugin, now the, my first plugin I ever bought was the GRM Tools plugins and they no longer worked they sort of stopped making them I think something happened to the company and uh, I upgraded my system and it just no longer worked and then only last year or a couple of years ago I discovered them that some French company had taken over the company and they'd reissued them and so I rebought all the GRM tools plugins which were fantastic in terms of I love using granular synthesis and there's a freeze plugin that they use and so I like manipulating the human voice with those with the those plugins so I use those which just happens to be the first plugins I ever bought about 20 years ago yeah yeah and nice to have that familiarity I guess even though there's obviously lots of newness in there yes yeah and and so I've my studio has been growing a lot over the last couple of years I've got um, an API lunchbox with uh, really, I mean, I just have a really nice clean signal path. U87 is my main mic and uh, I've got a couple of Neumann TLM193s and some uh, KM184s for plucked stringed instruments, which has a lovely brightness to them. Right. And I've got the, uh, I've also recently 
bought the Universal Audio. There's a digital modeling microphone that they have. All right. Because I've got the Universal Audio Apollo um, interfaces. So I'm a big user of all their analog emulations, you know, all their plugins. Um, so for, in terms of mastering my mastering bus, I'll use um, Pultec EQs and multiband compressors if I'm working on a feature or, you know, something. Um, I mean, I use Ozone as well, Isotope Ozone is useful yeah, yeah. I mean, for mastering. So you do your own mastering as well then? Well... Or you are a mastering engineer as well? No, that I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. I do mastering, but I would never call myself a mastering engineer. No, I mean, if I'm, yeah, if I'm doing an album or something, I mean, I do have a Shadow Hills um, dual van, van de Graaff in API lunchbox form. Mm-hmm. And that has this lovely dark, gritty texture to it, which is good for certain types of soundtracks uh and if i'm doing a dark soundtrack um which i mean or rather dark music in terms of emotionally dark music then that does come in uh quite useful it just gives this it gives the music such a character it has its own character but i wouldn't use it um ordinarily depends on the color and the the emotion that I'm after really um but yeah Neve preamps 1073 preamps in API lunchbox with the Neumann U87 um and that's that goes into my computer via the Universal Audio Apollos sounds like a very nice setup yeah I've got a lot of guitar pedals uh which go into my synths I've got Juno 60 and um and what else have I got Arturia Matrix Brute uh the Prophet 6 uh, Moog Voyager. So, you know, I'm very much, you know, away from the software and the plugins. I think it's important for me to be tactile and have that human connection with instruments and hardware because it just forces me to write in a different way. Um, and that's very much, I mean, using different types of controllers, like I'm a big advocate of Roly. I love the Roly uh, seaboards and the rises. I was one of the first first person in the country to have, in the UK, to have the big Roly grand stage 88 key um, keyboard. It says it gives a fresh approach. How would you say it does that? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, with technology, it's always been about, you know, going back to Peter's ideology about capturing the magic of performance Mm, mm. and and for me it's about you know doing that but also breaking down the barriers of technology and getting your ideas down so you know like for example a violinist you know they can do vibrato and with pressure and velocity and get all their dynamics out but when you're playing a keyboard which is my main my default instrument getting you know, expression into performance is harder because I'm having to record the musical part on the keyboard into Logic, my Logic Pro. And then I have to artificially program in the expression and the dynamics and the CC controller information. And by the time that's all been done, I've forgotten my idea. You know, I want to get, so I want to break down that barrier of what's in my mind when I'm inspired and I want to get an idea down as quickly as possible, quickly down in logic so that it sounds good as it can very, very fast. Capturing the magic. Yeah, because otherwise that magic of inspiration, creative inspiration is gone if I'm having to think about it too much. And technology has this 
there is that problem with technology because we have so many options, you know, that we can do so much that you get bogged down in the details and you lose that magic of inspiration. So something like the Roly, which is, you know, that uh, the velocity aftertouch and the, the MPE capabilities of it mean that I can have that, I can inject that expression uh, into a performance when I'm playing the keyboard that a violinist can or a guitarist can with vibrato and bending the notes and, and you know, that all, all those different aspects of musical performance. So um, I love it, you know, and, I, and I'm always playing around with new, new ways of doing that, um, like the Jouet play. That's another little uh, it's a French company. The French are really great at coming up with wacky controllers. I've got um, the is it the Lie Touche Touche, which is right. works really well with the Arturio Matrix Brute. Um, so I've got that uh, that sits next to me um, next to my controller keyboards. You know, I love the touch strips on the. Um, I've got the Native Instruments um, uh, sort of Mark II S twenty five keyboard. Mm -hmm. for key switches but I also use the touch strips on it as well and there's another one it's a palette gear mm -hmm. so palette gear have come up with these little portable modules it's mo modular blocks uh, which and you can assign cc's to these little modular blocks of faders or uh, little knobs and they're really it's great for a portable setup uh, on my laptop, on my MacBook Pro, but I, you know, it's so easy to use uh, in terms of assigning CC controllers. So, um, so I really like that as well. Um, and I've, I'm really looking forward to the new Osmos controller keyboard, right? Which is a development of the Hacken technology, um, the Hacken keyboard. They're sort of it was competing with the Roly Seaboards. But I've got the little Roly Rise keyboard as well, and I think they're really great because it's all about making technology accessible to everyone um, at a lower price bracket. But I use it as an additional sort of keyboard alongside my cheap Akai MPK88 controller keyboard. Any dreams or hopes for the future of technology within music? Well, there's this the whole thing about AI, isn't there? Um, I think um, I think in terms of speeding up workflows and breaking down the barriers that that technology can pose, uh, I'm always interested in new technologies and using them. But they are just a tool. You know, really, for me, the most important thing are the ideas. As much as, you know, what, what's funny is that as much as, you know, I, I use sound libraries all the time and I look for the imperfections in things. I think that with the advent of digital technology, digital synths, you know, from the analogue, there's this big surge in going back to the old analogue because of the warmth and the, the human the humanity that it brings into music. I've noticed the way I 
write and what I look for when I'm working with collabor- with, with uh, bringing musicians is that I look for sound libraries that have imperfections. And so I, I you know, I, I'm interested in the, the boutique sound libraries. Yes, I use all the Spitfire, which are my default libraries that I use and orchestral tools and, and 8DO and Soundiron and, and all of those big established library companies. But also working with real musicians so that I'll I'll do recording I'll have experimental recording sessions and then out of that I'll create my own little sound libraries you know uh, my own contact patches and contact libraries that give me that individuality you know for every project that I'm working on so for instance I've got a new Netflix film coming out uh, at the end of this month end of September it's called American Murder and it's a true crime film. It's about a remarkable murder uh, about a man who murdered his wife and, and two uh, young children in cold blood and uh, fairly recently in America. And I can't say much about it, but I can say that there were uh, the whole film is based on social media and text messages and Facebook and Twitter and so the f- mobile phone plays a big part in how this story is told so my unique way into the film was okay I'm going to record phone t- the f- you know put the phone tapping on the mobile phone and I did a percussion session recording session with this great percussionist who recorded himself doing little rhythms with his fingers tapping on the plastic. And out of that, I created some really tense rhythms uh, of the fingers hitting plastic. And there are some in the film, you see these big oil drums that are absolutely huge. So I took some of the location sound recordings of these oil drums and um, and t- twisted them and distorted them and used them as part of the, um, the rhythms and, and the soundscape. Uh, I mean, my my latest film, which is called The Reason I Jump, I did a lot of experimental recording uh, with. It was a very, it was a high concept score. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, because I I work a lot with the work I do with Drake Music is working with disabled people. Plus, I've read that book. It was actually working with a facilitator, John Holmes. You need to read this book. It's amazing. And I think to support that would be, yeah, the very sort of, sense a special sensitivity in a sense yes well i mean in terms of the the sounds you know that i used and my sound palette and the emotional side of the getting across the emotions in the story you have five characters and they're all non-verbal they don't speak and so i wanted to give them a voice so i used the human voice in the score but the original book upon which the film is based, The Reason I Jump, is written by a 13-year-old Japanese boy and he wrote the book in Japanese and then it got translated into English. So I took the original Japanese phrases and they're very sort of existential, metaphysical, beautiful, uh, almost very elegant and simple and, and beautiful in the way it's written. And there are some phrases, for example, like we are outside the flow of time because uh, neurodiverse people um, from his experience is that 
his perception of time is different. So um, so I took phrases like that and I broke them. It was like um, a broken jigsaw puzzle that you had to piece together. And so I recorded these vowels and consonants of these words, we are outside the flow of time, and broke them down into their elements and then recorded it and then pieced it together. And I used a lot of um, granular synthesis and uh, treatments and, and all sorts of GRM tools and uh, all sorts of um, interesting treatments to sort of make it sound taking organic sound sources and and not making them sound electronic but sort of twisting them and distorting them and taking all these elements aspects of autism and translating it into music so autistic people they, they respond to repetition a lot and so I brought in those repetitive movements in the music as well and um, so it's, it's all about storytelling and and trying to translate and get across the emotions in the film you know whether you're portraying different characters and their personalities and themes and translating that into a sound palette and into a uh, a musical concept for the score that affects the uh, viewer in a very subliminal way without them realising that how everything is in connected. And that's what I love about filmmaking and, and scoring music for film. Yeah, so using technology in an organic way, um, you know, that, that sort of interests me. Yeah, and like you say, keeping that humanity at the core. Absolutely, yeah. I think at the core of it, because what do people respond to? You know, when you watch a movie or a TV programme or you're listening to music, ultimately, for me anyway, um, it's about, it's about the, how it makes me feel. And, and I love the, the ability to be able to make people feel something, whether it's fear or, or joy, you know, when they're watching and experiencing uh, a piece of art or watching a film, that um, it's about, in, a, in the nicest possible way, manipulating people emotionally and making them feel something. And um, that, I, want, I never lose sight of that. So, you know, um, emotions and storytelling and humanity is at the core of everything I do, um, even though I'm in, surrounded by technology and I, and I embrace it and use it for, it to its, for its strengths and what it's best at, as opposed to letting the technology be there for the sake of the technology. Wow, fascinating stuff. And I feel like it's just still the beginning for you by the sounds of things. It sounds like it's an ever expansive journey. It is, yeah. I never know what I'm, I, yeah, I never know what I'm going to do, be doing from one day to the, well, one week to the next. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's all very exciting. Still, still excited after all these years. <laughs> Good. Fantastic, fantastic. And thank you for being so, yeah, being able to articulate all that. And, you know, over the years, you are, you're up there with the the pioneers that have you know seen through a lot of changes and and still yeah as you say still keeping it new thank you cara it's been an absolute delight talking to you today thank you for having me thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes for further information as well as links and details to other episodes in the electronic music series and just before you go let me point you to soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts where you can explore what's on our other channels too. This has been a Caro C production for Sound on Sound. Mm-hmm.